sensitive subject, and I'm, um, I'm pleased uh, that uh, Yeshiva Haratzion Miguelos are tackling this, uh, this challenging subject. Uh, I want to thank the Yeshiva for asking uh, me to participate. I'm not an alumnus, but I have one son who uh, studied for two years at Bush, and another son who's on his way. I also have two more sons who said they're going there, and a daughter who asked me, is there a gush for girls? And I said, yes, there actually uh, is a special place called Midelos, and I want to acknowledge Mrs. Esty Rosenberg, uh, who is here and joining us for this panel. I also want to thank my fellow panelists, Shaul Robinson, uh, Shana Goldberg, and Rachel Herkman, who are going to give us different perspectives on this topic from a senior rabbi at Lincoln Square Synagogue the Mashkicharu uh, Hanit at Migdalos and a high school educator uh, when Shana was in uh, was living in the U.S. and from a, a psychotherapist perspective, uh, Rachel Hartman, who works as a psychotherapist and deals uh, with issues relating to uh, sexuality and sexual trauma. Uh, I want my job is to frame the discussion and then hopefully help moderate uh, some questions of yours. Um, my name is Shmuel Hain. Uh, I'm a shul rabbi, but I guess my more uh, direct connection with this particular topic is as an educator, as a Rosh Beit Midrash at Sarah High School, uh, where we offer a course uh, in 10th grade called Sexuality, which we teach in tandem with, with health, and which I began teaching nine, eight or nine years ago, my first year in the school. And um, I want to share a story and then uh, unpack that story as a way of framing our discussion this afternoon. Um, the first year I taught this sexuality and Jewish values unit of, uh, of, the, of our, what we call our Beit Midrash curriculum, I had a student, it's the one class in, in SAR other than Jim, which is not co-ed, and I had a, a young man come to me after... Um, a few weeks of teaching a class um, who seemed visibly uh, upset. And I asked him you know, what he wanted to talk about, and he said that this class has brought to the surface some of the feelings that he has um, as a religious Jew. Uh, he was amongst our students, one of the ones who was most serious about uh, his Judaism, tefillah, um, Torah study, uh, chesed, all, all of those aspects. And he voiced to me in that private conversation that there was a certain sin that he uh, felt that he had great difficulty resisting. And in the course of this conversation, he kept on using that phrase, a certain sin. And in my response to him as an educator new to teaching this subject matter, I referred back to that also as a certain sin. And I think that this panel, hopefully, and in the nine years since, has helped me understand why my response in that situation was not ideal. And that rather than um, talking more openly about his struggle uh, in a way that would help him kind of engage it in a meaningful way, I kind of buried it even a little deeper. In his 
work Love and Will, the eminent psychoanalytic thinker Rollo May, has the following insightful and somewhat counterintuitive claim about how we living in a secular society in which we can openly discuss our sexual selves actually feel about sex. He writes, external social anxiety and guilt about sexual desire have, le have lessened. Dull would be the man who did not rejoice in this. But internal anxiety and guilt have increased. And in some ways, these are more morbid, harder to handle, and impose a heavier burden upon the individual than external anxiety and guilt. For May, the sexual revolution, far from serving as a cure-all to sexual anxiety and dysfunction, shifted the nature of its manifestations. Yes, it's true that shining a light on the subject of intimacy allows us to more comfortably manage some of our discomforts, but even as we imagine a world in which sex is viewed as a positive aspect of our deeply human selves, we still experience psychological complications in our efforts to realize these selves. Worse yet, sometimes the process of allowing ourselves to speak positively about sex, a process that is endorsed by many sources in the Jewish tradition and by the field of psychology, invites new problems. In May's words, the sexual freedom to which we were devoted fell short of being fully human. Even as we experienced a new sense of empowerment, self-awareness, and honesty, we sometimes become trapped in our self-awareness and increasingly conflicted. Consequently, our capacity for meaning relationships has somewhat ironically diminished. For teenagers, sexual potential brings with it anxiety. And anxiety can sometimes overwhelm our ability to respond with intention, rendering us incapable of reaching out to the world around us. I think May's observations have potentially significant implications in the way we talk about uh, sex and construct education programs in our schools and communities. I want to just add one more point, then I'm going to turn it over to our panelists with this frame. So if halachot about um, intimate matters are the blueprint according to which the Torah expects us to shape our behaviors, then agadok in the Gemara about sexual int intimacy very often describe what that blueprint looks like in the real lives of individuals and communities. They're case studies. And I think May's assumption regarding the importance of self-reflection and communication around these issues offer us a new way to consider some agadot dealing with the issue. Among the many strange and insightful agudot, agadot dealing with uh, sexuality in the Gemara, the following incident of Rav Kahana hiding under Rav's bed stands out. The Gemara Brachot on Samach Ben Amad Aleph, I'll just do the English translation. Rav Kahana once went in and hid under Rav, his teacher's bed. He heard Rav chatting with his wife and joking and being oset srachav, doing what was required, a euphemism for sex. He said to his teacher, one would think, or he said aloud, one would think that Abba's mouth has never tasted this dish before. Rav turned to him and said, Kahana, are you here? Go out, because it is inappropriate. Rav Kahana replied, Torahi, the Lilmod Adnitzari. It is a matter of Torah, and I am required to learn. The startling central image here of one rabbi hiding under another's bed 
the seemingly strikingly modern openness to sex education. For these reasons, this Agadah really demands our attention. And at first blush, it offers what seems to me, it seems to be a healthy message. Studying sex is a mitzvah, and it's a matter of Torah. It requires open study, and it's the responsibility of us educators to bring it to the Beit Midrash. Hiding under the bed is the ancient equivalent of learning about these issues from the internet. In the absence of real sex education, young men and women will justifiably turn towards less religiously acceptable sources of information and outlets for their curiosity and desire. So this understanding of the Agadah of Kahana presumes that the overall attitude towards intimacy is surprisingly contemporary and healthy. It's natural and therefore potentially holy. In the words of Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, the fundamental principle of the sexual ethic that we have in mind is personalizing the impersonal. In Berkowitz's view, sex is a Devar Mitzvah that enables us to draw closer both to another person and to God. And Rav Kahana, after all, has the last word in the Gemara. So when we arrive at that, we have a Talmudic perspective that dovetails neatly with certain modern assumptions. But it also fails to adequately address a key question. A question that might be, in, in fact, be the root of what we should be discussing at this panel. Psychologically speaking, what explanation is there for Rav Kahana's sneaking into his teacher's bedroom in order to watch him or overhear him having intimate relations. Certainly the story offers positive messages, but it also seems to present a less than ideal choice. How do we reconcile a religious context within which a seemingly healthy message about sexual intimacy is delivered with a religious context in which we encounter voyeurism? I think that this Gemara challenges us to talk about the issues that are most difficult to talk about. And yes, Rav Kahana, the paragon of openness, does blur the line between the bedroom and the Beit Midrash. He fails to recognize the inappropriateness of invading his teacher's personal space, perhaps because he fails to understand the true meaning of this most intimate relationship. His willingness to discuss sex so openly leads him to misread the boundaries that make sex meaningful. But at the same time, the language of the Agadah is resonant with May's concerns. Because even while the narrative reinforces a positive evaluation of sexual intimacy, it reiterates a central point that this positive evaluation is fraught with additional complications. The Gemara still is, in a sense, a case of sex sexual education that has not gone completely right. And so what I'd like to ask our panelists to speak about uh, this afternoon is how do we do better? As an Orthodox community, uh, what are the things that we can do in order to engender positive, healthy, psychologically healthy, religiously healthy uh, attitudes towards sexuality and intimacy, uh, with, beginning with our, our students and continuing, of course, through adulthood? So with that easy task at hand, um, we're going to begin first with Shana Goldberg. Shana is the Mashkicha uh, Ruchanit at Migdal Oz and previously uh, taught at Mayanot High School and is also a Yoetz at Halakha. Jane. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I, I guess I interface with this topic through many different hats in my work as a Yoetz at Halakha, 
definitely speaking with married women, married couples, and also as a teacher of Kalut. But I wanted to focus today mostly on uh, my role specifically in Migdalus, since we're here for the Yeshiva Haktion Migdalus dinner, and also the education that I think is important to be giving already to uh, young adults in high school, in college, in the post-college uh, years. I think the challenge, as uh, a little bit was touched on, is that we live in a highly sexualized society, and the gap between um, the culture that surrounds us and what we experience as Orthodox Jews is vast, and that leaves our young adults in a very, very confused place. And the way that I see it is that on the one hand, um, just by living and breathing kind of culture that surrounds us, we're sent mixed messages. There are messages even in secular culture that sex is bad, it's dirty, uh, there's something negative about it. That's rooted really in, I would say, Catholic ideology, which is, says that somebody who's truly holy is able to rise above any sexual desires and urges and live a supremely spiritual life. That's why in the Catholic religion, Pope, nuns, priests are supposed to be abstinent. So on the one hand, there are undertones, even in Western culture, of something being negative about this, even as the world is crazed by it. And on the other hand, there's a secular response to that approach, which is that don't tell me what to do, it's my body, I'll do with it what I want, with whom I want, when I want, in a way that works for me. And then we have young Orthodox um, adults, knowing that, well, clearly the secular approach is not what we believe, the attitude of Masha Bali, you know, we have a life that's dictated by principles and by halakha, so it can't be that, and therefore the approach to sexuality must be that, which is considered a re you know, the, the religious approach which is to be abstinent, and especially if they've heard something of Hilfel Nida, which at some point they will hear something about Hilfel Nida, and they know also about Shmirat Nigiyah. So that also leads to the assumption that, okay, even in the context of marriage, this is something that we think is negative or that we abstain from. And therefore I feel that it's incumbent upon us um, as parents, as educators, but as parents even, from an early age to start exposing our children and our students to positive attitudes towards sexuality. For many, many years I thought about this as a teacher of young women. Now uh, I have four young men, boys in my house and a daughter, so I've kind of shifted focus also thinking about the messages that I want to be giving them. And the way that I try to do this first and foremost is by going back to our text and by framing in a context of, even before we get to the Gemaras and the Shoman, the Psukim themselves, not gonna, you know, we don't have time for a whole shear, but just to um, mention there's three different ways that sexuality is referred to in the Psukim of the Humash. Um, and I think each of them brings something very, very significant to the conversation. The first one uh, that I want to talk about is that there comes a time in a person's life when they grow up and they leave their parents, the and they find a spouse and they cling to that spouse. Why? For the purpose of Rashi thinks oh, if you're leaving your parents and you're getting married, clearly it's to become parents yourselves, and that is a child, the manifestation of that union. The Ramban very strongly attacks Rashi on this and says, no, the purpose of the union is just that, 
to become one entity with somebody else in a way that's even closer than parents and child, because parents and child is not equal, uh, in a way that um, creates some kind of very, very strong intimacy and, and giving relationship. And I think the first message that we need to be sending our children is that sex and Judaism is not only about having children. Yes, when you are trying to conceive, there's an additional value, an additional meaning, an additional significance. But it's not only about that. A lot of times, you know, uh, children think like, well, the Torah tolerates this because this is the only way to have kids. But for many years of people's lives, whether they're using birth control or they're pregnant already or they're postmenopause, it's not about that. And giving the message that we, there's an inherent meaning in and of itself, I think, is the first step. There's also messages that come out from the very legalistic pasuk and mishpatim of Shirak Sutab Onatadoi Gara and different mefarshim on that and talking about the relationship that is mutual, um, uh, pleasurable, and why is it based specifically on, on, on the male and all kinds of messages that come out of the fulfillment that we're looking for there. But what I want to focus on in uh, my remaining moments today is for, for me, I find the most powerful and probably the language that's repeated throughout the Tanakh the most, and that's the language of Yediyah. The Hajam Yada et Chavishcho. Sounds euphemistic, right? Kids think that uh, the Torah doesn't know how to say sleep with someone or wants to use Lashon Nikiyah, so oh, you get married, you know your spouse, and you know, poof, you get pregnant. Um, but why is it called Yediyah? The Gerard HaKodesh says that it can't be a coincidence. Yediyah is exactly what distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. Animals don't have yediyah. Animals have instincts. They could only act based on, you know, the way that they've been programmed, what's natural to them. By calling this act yediyah, the Torah is trying to say that there's something kadosh, benedki, when it's done the right way, something holy and um, proper and right when it's done the right way in the right time. And he says, Zehu soti pat hazera, kishihin nimshecha mimakom hagidushah betara, nimshechad hadeya v'achachma v'habina v'hu hamoach, that when sex is done properly, uh, the right person, the right context, it brings along the intellect with it. That there's an intellectual act of intention that's going on here and not just a physical act of pleasure. And I think that this is the most important point that we need to be emphasizing um, today. Rav Soloveitchik clearly expanding on this in Family Redeemed. He says when the Torah uses the term vayada in the sense of knowing each other sexually, it's talking about the metaphysical element involved, that the term vayada torrents points towards an act of cognition or recognition. The I recognizes the personal existence of the thou. That yidiyah means that this is significant to me, this is pleasurable to me, this is uh, fulfilling to me because I am aware that I am with you. There's a recognition, there's a cognition of who I am with and that is what makes this act uh, what it is. The reason I think that this is so important is that even in our modern Orthodox world, our students are extremely, extremely um, wrapped up in the hookup culture of today, whether it be in high school or certainly in college, which is exactly the opposite. Doesn't matter who I'm with, I don't need to know their name, I don't need to ever see them again. All that matters is what's happening to me right now, and the concept of intimacy as something that goes hand in hand with sexuality has been lost. 
and something that for many of us, maybe, you know, who are married to saying, well, well, what is it without that? It's just, you know, you could, you could pleasure yourself. What is it without that concept of yidya, um, I think is what our students are most struggling with and um, trying to impress upon them why we think it is so important that this happens in the context of a relationship where there's an emotional backing, where uh, it's, it's something where you're giving to somebody else as opposed to just taking for yourself is at the crux, I think, of what we could offer them. Um, a few years ago in 2014, there was an article that was printed in the New York Times. They're printing many, many, many articles on uh, this topic today uh, that was called Sex on Campus. She could play that game too. It was all about, happened to be focused on the University of Pennsylvania, but La Dalka could have been talking about any, anywhere, anytime about how the women on campus have moved from trying to find boyfriends to finding hookup bodies, hookup buddies, where she says, we, we don't need to actually like the guy, we just need to find them attractive and hot and good in bed. And then, later on in the article, says that women said universally, however, that these hookups couldn't exist without alcohol, because they were, for the most part, too uncomfortable to pair off with men they did not know well without <coughs> being drunk. And this idea that we've tried to kind of, society has tried to convince people, no, all that matters is the pleasure, but then certainly the relationship does seem to matter, even if you convince yourself that it doesn't because you say you can't engage in it unless you are drunk. Um, trying to kind of uh, explain to our students what the potential for this is and what it means to give to somebody and to feel that somebody is giving to you as opposed to just taking for yourself, I think, um, are what we want to focus on in terms of promoting real happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Just two last points. Uh, one is that I recently spoke to the National Project, which is a fellowship for students in their junior year of college, um, all across the denominations in Hebrew U. Uh, of the 32 students I spoke to, men and women, only four were Orthodox. And they asked me to speak about this topic, and I shared these ideas. And it, it, it blew my mind, it also depressed me, that uh, one by one, men and women came over to me afterwards saying they've never heard anybody speak about what you're supposed to be looking for in this sexual relationship. I framed it to them as, imagine you guys are counselors in camp, and a 15-year-old comes to you in the bunk and says that, you know, um, something's going on with a girl, a boy, whatever, um, and they don't know if they should sleep with them, talking about non-Orthodox camps. What would you advise your campers to be looking for in that kind of relationship? Each one of them raised their hand. I would want to make sure that they you know, uh, are consenting, because that's it. Consent is, if you have consent, there's nothing more than that. I would want to make sure that they're not doing it out of pressure. Another way, five people spoke about different forms of consent until one finally said, I would want them to think about what they're looking for to get out of this relationship. It took six people to think about that, and I think um, that's what Julian's telling us here, that there's something more than just uh, uh, the physical. The last point I wanted to make, just to throw out there maybe for questions later, is that along with positive education towards sexuality needs to come open conversation about pornography, about masturbation, for men and for women, um, using um, direct, open ways of talking about these issues. I make sure in all my classes to kind of throw out stories or things that 
make somebody sitting in the classroom know that, oh, clearly other people have spoken to her about this. I'm not the only one that's struggling with this. I could maybe approach her also so that that feeling of like I'm involved in something sinful that maybe no one else is aware of or I'm the only one like this, the first reaction's got to be um, you're normal, people struggle with this, let's now see you know, how we could help you get from point A to point B. Thank you, Shana. Okay. Uh, next we'll hear from Cheryl Robinson, who's the senior rabbi at Lincoln Square Synagogue and a student at Yeshivat Haaretzion. Uh, thank you so much, and it's really an honor to be here on the panel and this, uh, this wonderful day, and to have a dinner, a yeshiva dinner, with actual Torah and education discussion is a, uh, is a tremendous novelty that I uh, really hope will catch on and right across uh, our community. I have to say that when I was invited to uh, um, be part of this panel, or uh, about, and was informed about the session, I really thought this is a great idea, I would love to sit in the audience and hear all about it, and when they uh, made clear they expected me to be on the panel, I really had, and I still have indeed, misgivings, because, um, not just because our level of expertise sitting up here with this illustrious panelist, but also as Rabbi Hain alluded to at the beginning when you said you sort of you're wearing as much more the hat the hat of the educator rather than the pulpit rabbi. Well the pulpit rabbis in this uh, in this uh, particular area, important as it is, is of course somewhat limited. Nobody, let's be frank, nobody really wants to come to Shul on Shabbos and hear the rabbi speaking about sex on the pulpit. An occasional allusion or setting a comment about morality, which we'll talk about more in a moment, is definitely in place. Uh, but, as the Mishnah Chagiga says, one, certain matters are not supposed to be spoken about in the public domain, at least in terms of, uh, of public lectures. And there is still a tremendous value for Sniut and for um, understanding where and which forum the, these conversations are best had. And while yeshivas and seminaries and high schools are critically important, in the public domain, from the pulpit, um, I definitely question about what extent uh, matters of frank intimacy uh, belong. So I'll say, from my point of view, as a Bulba rabbi, obviously in terms of marriage counseling, but more so in terms of preparing couples for marriage, either in terms of chatan classes. And whenever I hear one of the uh, very, very talented you and, uh, and learned Yoetz and Halakha speak, I'm always reminded that uh, Yoetz and Halakha are actually much much more trained than rabbis are. And we actually need a male equivalent of a Yetzir Halakha because the fact that a rabbi has smicha in Yoridea in no way means that they have the expertise. I'm not even talking about the technical expertise in Yoridea about the relevance of Tarita Mishpacha, but the simple ability to be able to discuss intimacy uh, with, the, uh, with the men of the Chatanin in no way approaches the, uh, the level of, uh, of training and sophistication by which the Yoritz and Halakha go about it. Still, I will say that when I prepare chatanim and work with couples uh, for marriage, there is always an extremely important um, opportunity and responsibility to talk about intimacy, not just the uh, description of the laws of Tarot HaMishpacha, but to reset expectations. And I have found that with um, couples who are particularly in the modern Orthodox world, where couples, whether or not they have been shomer negia, have been more or less chased in terms of actually sleeping together, but nonetheless, due to their exposure to popular culture, and I mean, I'm not even necessarily talking about pornography, just by going to movies, they actually paradoxically have an extraordinarily unrealistic expectation 
of what actually happens in the bedroom in married life. If all you know about is watching, you know, movies, and I don't necessarily, I don't even mean pornography, just movies where sex scenes are uh, portrayed to be, uh, you know, heroic and magnificent, it's not the reality for most married couples, certainly not the most married, inexperienced married couples at the beginning of marriage. And the sense of deflation, the sense of huge gap between what they were led to believe intimacy is always like, is naturally like, and what, for most people, it actually is like, is a tremendous gap. And, and expectations absolutely need to be, uh, to be managed in that area. But more importantly, and, and, and there is an extremely important point, I feel, about the fact that, even though I said before that rabbis and the community have to be careful how we discuss these issues, as, um, as Shana said before, we have a duty to set a moral tone to our community. There are many destructive things that are happening in our contemporary world. Tinder, the hookup culture, the ability, the knowledge that sex is freely available and is really a personal choice and comes without strings. It is almost impossible to imagine the people who are fully immersed in that culture, as corrosive and negative it is, will be able to go on and make successful, faithful weddings. And it is still the case, no matter how frank a society or how open people claim to be in society, um, infidelity and unfaithfulness destroy marriages, not just in traditional circles, but especially traditional circles. It's almost impossible to imagine that people who really have been fully immersed in a campus culture, let's say, of, of, of hookup and Tinder, will really be able to go on and create successful marriages and relationships built in faithfulness. And I will say, as part of my job as an Upper West Side rabbi, rabbi of a large kind of urban congregation, I marry many secular couples. And I find that when I sit with a couple, explain the ceremony, and I go through the first part of the ceremony, explain the meaning of the bracha, al arayot, the hitar lanu et ha... Actually, I have a chup on Friday, I'll remember the brachas before then, but when I explain to them the idea of faithfulness, the idea that you commit unconditionally to each other, and that's it. You're no longer looking for any kind of sexual satisfaction outside the marital unit you've created, I find couples find that an extraordinary refreshing idea. And the basic Torah morality that we have, Tina, is something that we should not only be proud about, but find ways and methods to be really able to be expressed. It's not that Judaism is kind of old-fashioned, behind the time, prudish. It's actually extraordinarily Okaron, extraordinarily the, the, the same ideas of Torah. As Sharon said before, not just the way the Torah approaches sex, but the very idea of the fact that it is so heavily legislated in Torah is there for a reason, for ultimate human happiness and satisfaction. So, um, and I just want to say one very last word. Obviously, as a parent and as somebody who sends, sees young men and women go off from my yeshiva, I've noticed, just as an aside, that there is much more of a feature in recent years of uh, of boys and girls, young men and women, even in yeshivas, um, having boyfriend, girlfriends, uh, even serious students, which I never really noticed until the last few years, but I've noticed a big uptake of committed relationships going from high school through to gap year. Whether or not that is a good idea or not a good year is a good idea, something we could discuss about. As I mentioned before the idea that really these conversations belong much more in the yeshiva, the seminary, and the high school. Uh, than in the kind of adult population. Pulpit rabbis do have a responsibility to speak about the corrosive 
lack of sexual morality in the general culture. Uh, the Me Too moment was an important moment where rabbis are, could be, should be, must be, both communicating the importance of the laws of Yichud, the importance of the laws of respect the individuals, the importance of the ideas that nobody is to be spoken to in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable, that, that uh, men are not supposed to in any way take advantage or try things on, even short of actual sexual relations. Moreover, we also have a general, if, if, if you happen to have elected officials who, who, who represent poor or bad sexual values, rabbi, the politics don't generally speaking belong in the pulpits, especially these days when we're so polarized, but morality always belongs to the pulpit. And uh, of uh, the few comments that I've ever made from the pulpit about um, uh, the uh, commander-in-chief, um, the comments that uh, bespeak a, a, a terrible sexual ethic are things that I have said and would continue to say when they come into the headlines because it's very, very, very important that rabbis are still voices of... Uh, of morality in the public domain. I'll, uh, I'll leave it here. Thank you. Our final uh, panelist, and then we're going to have some time for uh, some questions, uh, is going to bring a psychological perspective to this, Rachel Harkman, who works uh, in this field as a psychotherapist. Tough acts to follow. And I was also going to talk about the two, uh, was that Hedge of Roses, the two extremes? Yeah. You remember right here? Anyway. <laughs> um, so when I learned Navi, or Navi, but uh, in New York called a Navi. And I first heard the story about Rachav. We learned that Rachav was a Zona because she was called that because she owned a Mazon. Now, growing up in the five towns, we had a takeout place called Mazon. So that made perfect sense. And I remember a year or two later when I was in sleepaway camp and I had a friend there who lived in Israel. And I remember her telling me that, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, a person might, you know, to, that basically was derogatory to call someone a Zona. And I remember saying to her, like, why is that derogatory? Like, how is that a diss to be like, oh, man, she's such a caterer, you know? <laughs> and I think of this story because I think it represents a challenge that comes up very often for parents and for educators and for community leaders or even lay leaders in terms of how and when do we discuss issues related to sexuality with not just youth, but also with adults, right? Because this, this comes up in a lot of different ways. And we live in an age of overexposure, and it's not just about sex. Um, the internet and social media have nurtured a culture where there's a lot of sharing, which there's, there's definitely positive sides to that. There's no question that the internet and, and the access of sharing information has done amazing things. But at the same time, it's also pushed boundaries to a point where it can feel like boundaries no longer exist at all. And it's really kind of brought into, you know, it's really brought us to a point of asking what is the difference between privacy and secrecy, right? Because people are posting things that are deeply private, right? And aren't anyone's business, but yet everyone's sharing these things. And it's not just young people. I mean, even... Adults posting things, 
the vacation they went on, the, the diamond bracelet that their spouse just gave them for a birthday, right? Things that seem almost kind of tacky are pretty normal. So when we're talking about overexposure, we're not just talking about overexposure about sex and things like that. We're also talking about just overexposure about our lives and kind of creating these narratives that are not being necessarily real. And I've seen how, I've actually seen a bunch of studies that talk about how people tend to overestimate not just how happy their peers are, but how much sex their peers are having, um, how much sex other couples are having, or uh, polls of kids on college campuses that they always tend to think that their peers are having more sex than they are. There have been multiple studies that have suggested that millennials are actually having less sex than previous generations and are more solitary. So what we're looking at is kind of people that are talking a big game, have a, a nice social media presence that seems like their life is awesome and they're out and about, but actually, it's not to say that it's fake, but it doesn't match what's really going on for them in real life and what's going on for them inside. Now, for me as a therapist working in Manhattan, so I work with people from both the Orthodox community and outside the Orthodox community, and one of the things that's helped me in my conceptualizations of these issues is, uh, I'm not going to read it all, but a few paragraphs from Hedge of Roses, which was written by Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. What's very interesting about the book is that it was written in the mid-60s, but it sounds like it could have been written today. He talks about, actually, he says, you know, there's no secrets left any longer, um, we've, we stripped sex of its shroud of mystery. Um, Playboy is the Bible of our sexual revolution, which is also interesting because back then, to get your hands on pornography, someone had to sneak into a store, steal it perhaps, hide it under their mattress. It took a lot more work than just opening up your smartphone today. And even back then, if somebody was looking at a Playboy, they were looking at photographs and they had to use their imagination, which I think is one of the big tragedies today that it's not even just about what people are being exposed to, but just even what happens to the imagination and creativity and things like that. And both of these extremes, which Shane alluded to, in terms of the extreme of anything goes, as long as I feel good, that's all that matters, versus that other extreme of, you know, more of that Catholic influence of, you know, sex is, is sinful and marriage is a concession and things like that. Both of those extremes are lacking intimacy. Both of those extremes are lacking a partnership, right? One has no shame, one is full of shame, right? One is no limits, one is total limits in terms of like it's not even like there's any room for, like you said, even the pleasure. And I think that a lot of our adolescents and adults are dealing with those extremes too in terms of finding themselves in a place where they're they're looking for they're looking for a relationship to halacha that they feel like it that halacha understands them as opposed to halacha dictating what they should do. And we I mean it could be much longer conversation where that comes from. But I wanted to address some practical things that I think are helpful in terms of teaching these concepts to people. So I think it's always helpful to discuss, especially with younger people, the differences between privacy and secrecy because the internet is complicating that. I think younger people don't have an understanding of what something is when it's permanent, right? The things that we put on the internet is basically an electronic tattoo. Um, you know, we, my friends and I joke that you can't really have a bad hair day anymore 
because somebody took a picture of it and it's somewhere on the internet. And even just that from a consent perspective, and perhaps I'm a little more conservative about this, I'm very against posting pictures of my children on social media. A, because I think it's not sensitive that I have a lot of peers that would love to have children and for whatever reason are not in that place. I don't need my photographs to be triggering uncomfortable feelings. But my children can't consent. So isn't it ironic that I'm part of a generation that's having the most conversations with their children about consent, but yet all these adults are posting pictures of their children when their children can't consent to that? So even just that idea of you know privacy versus secrecy, regarding pornography, one of the issues I find to be very troubling about it is that if you ask a five-year-old, what's your favorite ice cream flavor, what would they say if you ask them? Well, okay, you ask them, like, what kind of ice cream do you like? Vanilla. Vanilla, chocolate, right? You ask a 25-year-old, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? What are you going to say? Cookie dough, Rocky Road, right? You're going to hear a much more sophisticated ice cream flavor, right? The issue I find with pornography is that kids are getting exposed to Rocky Road before they even have an understanding or even an appreciation for what, for what vanilla and chocolate is and that vanilla and chocolate can be enjoyable. And so... And I find when I talk to adolescents, they, they can appreciate that, that conceptualization. And it also makes it funnier, because then they start making up like, oh, what kind of flavor they like. You know? Oh, he's at the Mitchell the chip. But um, in terms of how we frame things. Now, practically speaking, um, a few things I find helpful from the educating perspective is first to get honest with ourselves as people imparting the message, how we, how we feel personally about these themes. Because our feelings about it and our biases and our comfort level will absolutely shine through. If we're in a position of counseling, if we're in a position of teaching, it, it, it comes through. We also need to understand, that's, and this has been shared, that it's, it's a lot more difficult now for a child to be insular. And so if we don't have the conversations with them, they're going to get their information from somewhere, and it may not. there's a good chance it's not going to be couched the way we want it to be couched. And it also makes them more susceptible to myths because if, if someone's not hearing a competing idea to what they're being exposed to in secular culture, then how are they going to know that that's not really true, right? If, if there's an absence of conversation in their Jewish environments and they're only getting information from the outside, they're not hearing anything competing. Using clinical terms and euphemisms. So this is something that comes up often, and I've had respectful disagreements with some colleagues in Rabbanim about this, of like that there are euphemisms obviously used in Gemara and things like that. But I do think that especially when we're dealing with teenagers, it's very helpful to use clinical terms for things. Also because we don't, we can't always assume that we're talking about the same thing. So, you know, using a term like, um, I'll give an example. Um, sometimes with Kala classes I've, or Khatan classes, I've heard people say things like, well, they weren't able to complete the mitzvah, which, so I'll usually then clarify and say, are you talking about they weren't able to have intercourse, right? But it's not even just that. The issue there is that's a spiritually loaded thing to say that you weren't able to complete a mitzvah, right? So even just using words for things, and from a medical perspective, it's very helpful when people have, are able to use words for things to, they have to explain symptoms to a doctor. So there is that piece too. Um, I feel strongly about not teaching issues related to sexuality with that kind of fluff and panacea. Sometimes Taras Mishpacha is taught with a lot of fluff. And what ends up happening is that later on, I find that adults feel very disenchanted with the system that they were taught things in that way. 
So it's almost, and I always compare it to kosher. So if we talk kosher is the same way, and if we told people, if you keep kosher, your food is gonna taste so much better. You're gonna be healthier. And when you go to Disney World and you're walking around and seeing those people chomping on those big turkey drumsticks, you're gonna be like, nope, I don't want that. I'm gonna eat my hot tuna sandwich. No, you, you, you wouldn't think that, right? And we validate, it's interesting, we validate for people that non-kosher food can look good, right? We validate it even though we can't eat it, right? So I think even the way we talk about Tyrus Mishpacha, and I do actually find, I've collaborated often with you at Halacha, and I actually feel that they do a great job in terms of talking about Nida and things like that in a very kind of straight way and not, not kind of giving too much fluff in, in that regard. And um, I'm just going to skip ahead so that we have time more for the questions. In terms of the us and them of us versus non-Jews that like our non-Jewish counter, you know, peers, they're up to this, but we as Jews, we, you know, I always, I always ask for nuance with that because I find that in our Jewish communities, we're dealing with a lot of the same issues that our general culture is dealing with and hormones don't wear yarmulkes and we are human beings dealing with the same issues. And it's helpful when we can normalize, it doesn't mean we need to encourage it. But we can validate and educate at the same time. We can validate a desire. We can validate a struggle, but also be educating as well. And also in terms of teaching Tzniyas, this, this I find comes up with Shomer Gia a lot and with Tzniyas often, is the whole men are pigs and that's why we need to be Shomer or that's why women need to cover up. It, I don't think it works for women and I think it's highly insulting for men. I mean, you guys aren't pigs. And... <laughs> Also, the message that that sends to women, like, stay away, they're pigs, but you're going to marry one in a few years. Like, how does, how does that all come together? And I see often for couples that it kind of all falls apart when they get married because then if, let's say, they're going through a rough patch and, you know, the husband says, like, yeah, she, you know, she won't even touch me, she won't even give me a hug. And I've seen, what, you know, the women say, oh, you, you care about being hugged? I thought you just care about having sex, right? So it, it all kind of blows up later. So in terms of the education piece, it, it, and it takes a lot of sensitivity and nuance, but in terms of us looking at both men and women, yes, they might be different. There might be books about them being from different planets, different galaxies, whatever you want to call it, but that both men and women have emotions, and both men and women want to feel loved and attractive, attractive and want to be held and things like that. Um, and I'm just going to end with a quick story. Um, I recently met, I bumped into someone who's in her early 70s, and she told me that when she got married decades ago, they couldn't consummate their, they couldn't have intercourse for eight months, and um, I'm not going to get into, she had a physical condition or whatever, in the end she, they were able to, but she said to me, she said it was such a lonely time, she said in those days, she said I didn't have a college teacher, I didn't call the show Revitan, my husband didn't learn with anyone, so we just kind of were left by ourselves to figure it out. And she said, you know, it's really nice that the younger people now have so much more support. And I want to end with that story because I think while there are a lot of challenges that we're facing today with these things, we've also come a very, very long way. So I just wanted to um, end with that, and thank you. Okay, I'm going to wrap up since we've just gotten the, the, the let's end it and apologize for not having time for questions. I'll, I'll, I'll leave us all with a, with a question. Um, based on the remarks of the panelists, uh, which is how do we make it so that parents and uh, kids 
uh, can have more of these kinds of conversations. Because as an educator, I've had a lot more success discussing this with students than I have with my own children. And uh, I think one of the things that's always interesting when I teach this in 10th grade to our SAR students, I'll say, why don't you guys go home and, and mention something that we discussed in, in, in class today you know, ask your parents, you know, about this particular issue, even if it's not necessarily something graphic. And the look I always get is that those are the last people that I'm going to talk <laughs> to about this. And I think even as a parent who has tried to have those conversations with uh, his children, one of whom may or may not be in the room right now, um, this, this is something that I think we need to kind of, as a non-Orthodox community, get parents more comfortable with and figure out a way that it doesn't fall on the psychotherapist, the shul rabbi, and the yoetzet, or even the mashkichah ruchanit in Israel, that parents and their, and their adolescent children are having these real conversations. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.